I'd like us to turn once again to the Word of God in the New Testament and the Gospel or the Epistle of Peter. First Epistle of Peter, chapter three, and reading once again at verse eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This particular verse uh, overlaps quite broadly over what I was talking about this morning. It wasn't intentional, uh, but I enlarged this morning's address and it has overlapped onto what I'm going to be trying to develop here this evening. We're told right at the beginning here that Christ once suffered for sins the just or the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We read in the epistle to the Romans that God is just and the justifier of the ungodly that believe in Christ Jesus. And so again, these two readings link together very much. Now in Peter's writings, remember Peter, the the bold Peter who was always very boastful and always very much to the fore. On one occasion he denied the Lord Jesus Christ with cursings and, and denial which brought the Lord's compassion out to him. Yet after he was restored he became really the leader of the group who were there in Jerusalem. When we see them at the, the council in Jerusalem he is very much a spokesman there and part of the the guiding group who lead the church forward into outreach and developing places to the north of Israel and even sending Paul on his missionary journeys. Now, this first epistle of Peter deals primarily with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, with what he did when he came and what he achieved while he was here on earth. Now the second epistle, which I'm sure all of you have read, deals with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What effect his life on earth and his death on earth had to, what bearing it has on the church that is yet to be built up during Christ's first coming. And also what he expects to find on earth when he returns during that second coming, that second advent. Now, what this text speaks mainly about is the suffering of the Lord. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The Lord's whole earthly existence was one of suffering. His life begins 
with suffering. From being born in a manger, having no room in the inn, knowing poverty in his childhood, in his infancy. Remember the parents, when they brought the sacrifice, they, were, they brought two turtle doves, which is the most meager of sacrifices acceptable to God when they brought the child for circumcision. To the time of Herod's anger against the, the king of the Jews, as the, the wise men named the Lord Jesus Christ, to being a stranger in Egypt, and then spending years in Nazareth, and being called a Nazarene, with all the overtones that that particular word has for the Jews, and while he was there, being prepared for a future life. So in all this, these different aspects of the Lord's early life, it began with a life of suffering. It was a portent of what was going to occur during the left, rest of that life. We also told in the scriptures that he suffered being tempted. As soon as the Lord Jesus Christ appears in his public office, as he appears to begin his ministry among the people on earth, we find that the Holy Spirit descends on him at the baptism. And then the Holy Spirit drives him into the wilderness to be there tempted of the devil. And he's there tempted for 40 days. 40 days and nights. We're only told of, of the three temptations that the devil levels at him. But you, we can be assured that during that whole period, the devil was always there, always seeking to defeat his ministry, always seeking in some way to circumvent the outcome of the ministry that Christ here is beginning to undertake. And so for 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord Jesus Christ is in the wilderness being tempted. He's, he suffers deprivation. He suffers hardship. suffers thirst. He suffers hunger. And that, of course, was one of the temptations that the devil leveled at him. If he be the Son of God, command these stones be made into bread. And so in all these different ways, there is the suffering in his own person, the suffering in his soul. And he suffered when he was being tempted. As soon as he appears in Galilee, the Spirit descends on him. And then throughout his life, we read, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was almost always a fugitive. Not a fugitive from justice, but a fugitive from them who were always seeking him, that, as the Lord once said, you seek me because you want your stomach to be filled. Not because you've seen miracles, but because you want to, be, to perform a miracle to multiply your bread and give you feast without you having to work for it. And so he was despised of men, he was rejected of men, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and rejected of men because even at his birth there was a, there was a, a farmer, there was a rumour that his birth was not as it should be, that he was born out of wedlock. Now that's because, of course, as we know, his mother was a virgin and 
the Father, the conception was by the Holy Spirit, and he was the Son of God in every sense, as much as he was the Son of Mary. But yet, it was difficult for people there to understand this particular aspect of Jesus' heritage. And so they, they accuse him, they accuse his life, they accuse his family, and so he becomes more or less a, an outcast in the place where he is being raised, there in Nazareth. In Gethsemane, as he begins the final aspect of his ministry here on earth, he truly is there a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows as he sees the sins of the world surrounding him, acquainted with grief as he, as he sees the, the grief of the people, what sin has accomplished in them and what it of, of brings into their experience, into their life. Uh, by the way they live and the way they behave and the way, in fact, that they disregard and disobey God. And so he is in that garden as he knows there the sweat and the tears. Remember that in the garden he's, he's praying to his father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And we know that on a, on a cold night when uh, there was even the soldiers where Peter was gathered in the high priest's house, they were gathered around the fire. So it was a cold night. Yet on that particular night, as the Lord Jesus Christ is in the garden, he is there bathed in sweat. And it's a bloody sweat. Because we're told that the sweat fell from his brow as though it were blood, mingled with that sweat. And there were tears, strong crying and tears. And he was heard in that he cried with those strong crying and tears. So we know that in Gethsemane uh, there is suffering, uh, there's strong crying and there's tears. In Gethsemane there's a betrayal of one of his disciples as Judas comes and betrays him with a kiss. There is the false accusation that takes place not only in Gethsemane but also in the Sanhedrin where he's accused of all sorts of crimes, none of which can be proved and none of, of, none of, which, of which he is guilty. And so he's, after Gethsemane, he goes into the Sanhedrin and there he is spitefully used. He is spat upon. His beard is plucked. He is clothed in a red robe. A crown of thorns is put on his head. And the soldiers are bruising him and scourging him all the time. So he's enduring great suffering through all this particular period. Now we can say that many people have known such suffering in this world, but we're not talking about any person. We're talking here about the holy, harmless, innocent Son of the Most High. Never having been accustomed to being abused, never having been accustomed to being cast out from society, never having been accustomed to being falsely accused, he always heard his father's pleasure. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And then all of a sudden, he finds it all turned upside down, and he's suffering in Gethsemane, in his own state of mind, in his emotional turmoil, and he's suffering there, amongst the Jews, and 
in the Sanhedrin. And so, as that whole trial unfolds, we see what happens there in the, the palace, Herod's palace, where he is falsely accused and falsely condemned. And along the, the Via della Rosa, the road to the cross, there also they are calling out with all sorts of accusations. There is the, the fasting to the cross with the nails through his hands and his feet. And there is the raising of, the, of the, the cross and it's being plunged into the ground and, and the shudder of that as goes through his body as the whole nails catch hold of his hands and his feet as he goes through all the suffering is occurring to the Lord Jesus Christ. I said before, others have suffered physically in just such a situation, but here is God's Son. Here is someone who has never suffered in just such a way, who has never known that kind of pain, never known that kind of association of sin and pain in his own body, because he was always wholly harmless and undefiled. He was wounded in his side. He was confessing of his thirst. He had to endure the mockery and the scorn of the people around about him. He knew the desertion of his own father on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he has to suffer in death himself. What better summary can there be of all that the Lord has endured up to the stage than to say, Christ also has suffered once for sins. But then also we can see that he suffered without limit. There was no limit put on his sufferings, but the limit that his father had placed on the evil that men could do to his son. We can also ask, when did Christ suffer? When did he endure the suffering that we are talking about? When Christ was on earth, when and where did he not suffer? As you read the Gospels, as you see what he had to endure, as you see the affliction that was placed upon him. We know that in every situation and in every way, Christ suffered. And as he suffered because from the beginning of his life, he was the sin bearer. Now that term from the Gospel of John in chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God, bearing away the sin of the world. And so from the time he was born, Christ became the sin bearer. The one who was bearing away the sin of the world. The text doesn't say to us Christ suffered on the cross or Christ suffered in the garden. But that he was a man of sorrows. And that he was closely acquainted with grief. That all this that he was suffering was for you and for me. In a sense his whole life was a life of suffering. Again, we can ask, what did Christ suffer? We've asked, when did Christ suffer? And we say, throughout his life, on every situation, on every occasion, 
Christ suffered. And we can ask, what did he suffer? Well, the text gives no limit to the suffering which he had to undergo. What did he not suffer? In body, in the crucifixion, in mind, in the garden, and in spirit. Oh, when he was made liable to the, the powers of darkness. The pain, the shame, the, the loss of his own dignity, the hatred that was directed towards him from his own people, the Jews he came to his own, but his own received him not. And the derision from the scribes and Pharisees and the priests as he hung there on the cross. If you be the son of God, come down off that cross. Pharisees, soldiers scourging him from heaven, being made sin for us, being made a curse from us, offered us up for us all. And being made a propitiation for us. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And perhaps this, this aspect of the propitiation is probably the worst aspect of a suffering. A spiritual suffering when the whole anger of God was, was poured out upon him. He becomes the shield of that anger. If we think about the mercy seat in the temple. You have the mercy seat and you have the, the cherubim above it. And in the old dispensation, the Jews believed that God dwelt between the cherubim, above the mercy seat. And the mercy seat there is to shield God's eyes from the broken tables of the law. Again, symbolism, but speaking of the way that the Jews lived contrary to God's law and contrary to God's wishes. And so Christ becomes that mercy seat. He becomes the one who shields God's anger from us, but who bears that anger in himself. He propitiates, he expiates, he suffers, he bears all the anger, he soaks up God's anger. So God's anger is never, comes through his protection towards us. And so, what did Christ suffer? He suffered all these different things. He suffered physical, physically in the cross and the hanging and he suffered emotionally as regards the way that he was rejected of men. He suffered spiritually in that his own heavenly father was unable to come close to him at this time because he had been made sin, made sin by his own heavenly father. And if you ask where, where in all the different aspects of his experience did he suffer? Well, he suffers in the wilderness. He suffers there for the 40 days and 40 nights. He suffered at the hands of the devil. As I said, it wasn't just on those three occasions. That's all we're told about. But he was tempted throughout that whole period. Being tempted to re reject his, his sonship of God. Being tempted to use his innate powers to, to relieve the suffering that he was going through. And again and again, although he was tempted to the uttermost, yet he did not give in. Now we, when we're tempted, just like Adam and Eve, give up at the very, very first. 
direct attack upon us. But Christ was tempted again. He was tempted to the utmost of endurance and he kept rejecting the temptation. He kept going on, being in God's presence, obeying God's laws. And no wonder the Father could say, Behold, this is my beloved Son, in whom I take great pleasure of because of all he is and all that he has done and he is doing for me. So he suffered in the wilderness, he suffered in the garden. What a place that garden must have been for the Lord's own suffering. He goes there, he knows he's going there to intercede. Intercede not only for himself, intercede not only for his disciples, but intercede also for the church down through the ages. And that's what he's engaged there in this particular occasion there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And on one occasion, he adds these words, Nevertheless, if the cup will not pass from me except I drink it, let your will be done. And there he's acknowledging the fact that he has to drink the cup. He has to take all the curse, all the physical suffering, all the spiritual testing that is coming his way because it is not for himself. It is for you and for me. It's the church down through the ages. He's looking towards the church that he is dying for. He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. The Lamb that has just been slain for his people, for his church, for the generations that are yet unborn who will praise and magnify the Lord because of what he has done and what he accomplished there in Gethsemane in finally consigning himself to do what his father had asked him to do. And so he suffers in the wilderness, he suffers in the garden, he suffers in the Sanhedrin. Can you imagine there the people to whom he sent? He comes to his own and his own received him not. He is the Messiah that the Jewish nation have been looking forward to for generations. They've sought him, they've searched the scriptures, they've looked at everything and every item of prophecy that comes, but they've missed this particular aspect. They've missed the, the teaching that's there in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And John picks it up, he comes to his own, and his own receive him not. We get there in Isaiah 53 that he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hide our face from him. We treat him as a root out of dry ground with no form and no comeliness. We hide our faces from him. All this is because he has been made sin. It is he is enduring what he's enduring because he has set his face to accomplish your salvation and mine. In spite of what we do to him and what we have committed against him and against his law, yet he continues to love us. He continues to, to bring us to our senses, to make us willing in the day of his power and to cause us to trust in him and to call upon him as our Lord and our God. And he suffers before Pilate as well. Years in the hands of Pilate, there is the possibility 
even the right that he might be set at liberty because Pilate says, I will set this man free because I find no fault in him. And yet when the, the people cry, crucify him, crucify him, Pilate's mind is changed and he gives them over to do with him whatsoever they please. Now we know that all this was in the coordination and the will of God that it pleased the Lord to bruise him he put him to grief he made his soul an offering for sin for us and for our salvation but each one in this, this whole scene of Christ's crucifixion has to bear their own responsibility the Jews have to bear their own responsibility the high priest and the scribes and Pharisees have to bear their own responsibility the actions of Pilate they have to bear their own responsibility that what has been done has been done because they chose so to do and that's especially true of Judas Iscariot how many times was he warned how many times did the Lord try and shake him from the course on which he had set yet he continued blindly and bluntly to go and declare his betrayal in the face of the Lord's enemies. Yes, there came a time when he was full of remorse. No real repentance, uh, but remorse when he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. There's no thought there of the Lord, the Redeemer, the Redeemer of God's elect, the one who's been sent to save sinners in this world. All he sees is that he's committed a crime for which some sense of Guilt has infiltrated his, his, his diseased mind and he wants to give his money back and say, I've betrayed innocent blood. But for Judas himself, thus, you say, there is no hope. There is, there is no salvation for Judas because he is the son of perdition. None have I lost, said the Lord Jesus Christ, saved the son of perdition. And also the Christ suffered on the cross in the wilderness, in the garden, in the Sanhedrin before Pilate, and ultimately on the cross. That's where he suffers. Suffers for our sins, for your sins and mine. And that's the question we're going to ask ourselves. For whom did Christ suffer? He suffered for you. And he suffered for me and for everyone who puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what lives we've lived. It doesn't matter how far down the road of unrighteousness and ungodliness we might have been in our lives. Yet there is in Christ the promise that he will die for our sins. That God sent his son to die for the unrighteous. To die for, for wretches like you and for me. To take us from the fearful pit and from the miry clay. Set our feet upon the rock that is Christ Jesus. And delivering us from what we justly condemned for. And to bring us to that place where he will own us as his own. And take us into his own family. But from, from whom did Christ suffer? Well, he suffered from wicked men. 
the wicked men who were supposed to be the leaders of the church in that day he comes to his own and his own precedes them not the ones who should have been the leaders of the people leading them to their Messiah but they have their, they have their own course of action and they have their own desire to live out their lives in the way they want to live it and they make laws which they don't keep but they lay these burdens upon the, on the people in front of them he suffers also from those who falsely accuse him the ordinary people coming in and slandering him and, and falsely accusing him he suffers from good men the disciples whom he's chosen he suffers emotionally when they desert him and they all left him when he was taken there in the garden all left him all we know is that John followed and Peter followed after John and then Peter even denied the Lord there with curses and swearing and so in all these different ways uh, the Lord is suffering from these people deserting him in his time of need even uh, the best of the disciples and as I hinted earlier on he suffered from the dem- devils tempting him to the utmost even the cry of the people there come down off that cross and prove you the son of God is the same uh, that sort of temptation that he uttered there in the desert if you fall down and worship me I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth there's no need to suffer and so also here there's no need to suffer just come down off that cross and prove who you are and so the suffering is physical it's emotional and it's also spiritual from his heavenly father making him sin not listening to the cry of their election when he cries my God my God why have you forsaken me we ask is that all is that all there is is there nothing else and we have to say no he gave his back to the smiters yes that's true in a physical sense but it's also true in a spiritual sense he placed himself under the condemnation of men and of God himself when the time was come when his hour was come he set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem knowing that as he went there he was going to be mocked and scourged and crucified the idea of not going on never crossed his mind that possibility never crossed his mind yes we have the words there in the garden but they're the words of his humanity shrinking at all the physical and emotional sufferings that he was going to have to endure wondering that at that time would he be able to undergo and finish the work that his father had given him to do and in pursuance of that of that strengthening his father sends an angel into the garden to strengthen him 
Now what the angel did, we are not told. But if we think back to what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's Moses and Elijah talking about what the Lord would accomplish at Jerusalem. His victory over sin, his victory over death, the glory of his church. And no doubt the angel also encouraged him with these thoughts and these words. And also the angel's very presence, being there, would have encouraged the Lord, encouraging him to know that here were angels who were his, his ministers, who were those who worshipped him before he came to this earth. And so he's there undergoing these difficulties, setting his place, going towards Jerusalem, knowing he's going to be mocked. And never for a moment denying the course of action which he had entered into and had agreed to enter into. Even when his human nature shrank from it. Says the Father, the cup which my Father has given me, shall I not drink it? He says that to Peter. When Peter says, this shall never happen to you. When he he tells the disciples that he's going to be handed over into the hands of wicked men and be crucified. Peter says to him, this thing shall never happen to you. And the Lord says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, for you are seeing not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. He says there, the cup which my Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And he did drink it. Having undertaken to suffer for sins, he stood before Pilate, being falsely accused. He was smitten on his body, and all over that body by the scourge they bound his eyes and buffeted him and said prophesy who struck you he was reviled and reviled not again his only reply to his father was forgive them for they know not what they do and we find here no wonder we find in Christ this adorable, this lovable, this one whom we want to worship because of all he endured for us and for our salvation and all that he has accomplished for us. That he has become our Lord and our God. And there was nothing to alleviate the agony through which he had to pass. In Christ's case, there is no comfort. Comforters are found I none. No wine to deaden the pain. He was offered wine on a, a stalk, a hyssop. At, and wine they used to give to the prisoners there on the cross so it would deaden the pain. But he refused that. He tasted death. He suffered death for every man. There was no answer to his cry to his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are never forsaken and never will be forsaken because he was forsaken. And that's the great wonder 
of the cross, the great act of substitution. He was forsaken so that those who trust in Christ and believe in Christ and commit to Christ will never be forsaken because he was forsaken for us. You know, we are bound to die sooner or later. But that was not the case for Christ. There was no such need for him to die. He suffered willingly. He suffered as one who need not have suffered. But he suffered willingly. He suffered for you and for me. He gave his back to the smiters. He gave his life. His life poured out as his blood unto death for you and for me. See, at any moment, Christ could have come off that cross and caused his pain to cease. At any moment, as he told his disciples, he could have called for 12 legions of angels and they could have come and scattered his enemies. You know, if we suffer, we suffer less than we deserve, knowing in and of ourselves the just reward of the penalty of the sins we commit. But in Christ there is no sin. Suffering not for his own sins, but for ours, for yours and for mine. Because for our iniquities, bruised for our iniquities, chastised with our chastisement, and with our stripes. With his stripes we are healed. And more the sufferings of Christ's soul were but the soul of his sufferings. They bore into his very being into the very person that he was. He, he suffered all that he could have suffered, as I said, without limit. Without the limit of the people who were around him. They did all they wanted to do to him and more. And so Christ has once suffered for sins and never again. In the Roman Catholic Church, they act out the scene of the Mass I don't know how many times on every day in many different places throughout the world on every occasion they crucify Christ again. That's what the Mass means. The Mass is the literal working out or acting out of that crucifixion. But Christ suffered once for sin and never again will he suffer. He died once for sins. Never again will he die he rose to die no more. A prince and a saviour forevermore. The hymn writer puts it this way. See from his head, his hands and feet, sorrow and love flow mingling down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a Present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my love, my life, my all. You know, these words you 
the bleeding of the hands, of the feet, the side, all speak of the grief that the Lord Jesus Christ had to endure. Just one thought. Christ also has once suffered the just for the unjust to bring us to God. Does that have any effect on us? Does it work any response in us? Or can we hear such words as these, read such texts of these, and really have no effect? Makes no difference to our lives. We continue to live the life God has given us in His mercy, leaving us still here on mercy's ground while we are encouraged to call upon the Lord while He is near and to, to seek Him. Are we just going to be as the epistle of James tells us to look into that mirror of life which is the scriptures and then having seen what sort of people we are turn away with no regret with no desire for change but just leave things just as they are a little folding of the arms a little closing of the eyes a little slumber and a little sleep is that the way we are going to live out our lives? Or are we going to turn them around and seek the Lord and call upon his name and to cry out for mercy? Lord, what must I do to be saved? And may the Lord bless these thoughts to us. We shall conclude our worship now singing to God's praise in Psalm 146. Psalm 146, sing Psalms version on page 191. Praise the Lord, my soul will praise him. I'll extol him all my days, while I live to God my Saviour. From my heart I will sing praise. We'll sing from verse 1 down to the end of verse 6. That's four stanzas to God's praise. Mercy and peace. 
and the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, rest on you and abide in you now and always.